What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And today we're going to find out why you can't expect people to push the envelope if you haven't done the work of laying a clear foundation of trust, transparency, and clarity of communication. Whether it's banking, financial services, or consulting, these foundational needs have to be met before you can ever start the work of becoming an exceptional leader and building an exceptional team. That's what I think you'll learn from listening to our conversation today with Dr. Z, Jill Zimmerman. Jill is an industrial organizational psychologist with over 40 years of corporate practitioner experience in building talent strategy and driving diversity as key business enablers. She's regularly used her change management expertise to engage people throughout an organization in embracing and delivering the business strategy and outcomes set by the company's leadership. She's held a ton of positions. She's been a chief people officer, chief talent officer, chief DEIB officer, and she's got extensive global experience building and implementing the full life cycle people strategy and using change management expertise to ensure effective execution against business strategy. Currently, she's the EVP and chief people officer of a mid-sized financial services organization in the Midwest. Joe Zimmerman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Jim. Before we dive into the main part of the conversation, what I'd like you to do is share with the listeners anything that you feel is important from a personal or professional background perspective that's going to add some context to this conversation that we're going to have about building elite teams. Thank you. Uh, a couple things would be that I have about 42 years of inheriting, molding, and building teams. And I've inherited teams that are broken. I've inherited teams that didn't exist. And I've inherited a combination of both. And it's actually been an interesting challenge as you come into an organization and you get put in a leadership position. You have to work with what you have and figure out what you need. And I would say that I followed three things as I've entered organizations, which ultimately have enabled me to build the right team to meet the business goals. The first thing is when you enter a new organization, you really need to understand the business, what they do, where they're going, how they're organized, what their mission is, what the cultures, every th single thing about it. The second thing that people skip a lot is that you can't just stay in your own circles. You need to really build relationships across the entire organization at all levels. That allows you to get different perspectives on the business and on the people and on the culture. And then you're ready to build the team and provide the solutions and make sure all of that fits the business and where they're going. Ooh. So even in that, I have a bunch of follow-ups, but I'll limit myself to a couple. Throughout your work experience, you've built teams from zero. You've inherited teams that were broken. When you look at those two contrasts, building an entire team from the ground up or inheriting a, a broken team, what was common 
about those two experiences that you feel stood out that you didn't expect? I'm, I like threes. The law of threes always works because you can remember. I think these were game-changing realizations that helped me consistently build a team, whatever it was that I inherited. And it's going to sound really fundamental, but there's a lot of depth, depth behind each of these. Number one is I think when you come in, one of the things that I think and I valued and I've done is I believe in openness and transparency with your team. That's number one. If you're not clear about who you are, and that's everything from getting people getting to know you personally to getting to know your philosophy, your expectations, how you work, who you are. Remember, they don't know who you are, especially when you're coming in new. It's also being transparent because in a leadership position, you have access to information that the team doesn't have. And so you have to make a choice as a leader. Am I going to share that or not? I've always chosen to treat my team as adults and as peers to me. And in order for us to achieve our mission and our goals and build the right solutions, I am as transparent as anybody could be. And they know that I'm trusting them to value that information and that transparency. That's number one. Number two, I think you have to set very clear expectations. So once you know what you're doing, you have to set clear expectations both at the individual level, like what is each individual's role? What are they expected to do? How are they expected to do it? And then I think the thing that often gets missed with the team is what are the expectations of us as a team? What are we going to focus on? What are the priorities? Is everybody clear on those? Are we going to provide feedback loops along the way to see how we're doing, but against those expectations? And that sort of draws me to the third piece, which is it's really essential to provide ongoing feedback. And by the way, I think the feedback needs to be two-way. The leader needs to communicate to the team as a team, but also to individuals. And the end of it, you need to make yourself open to receive feedback. And it is a fact that if you ask for feedback, people will give it to you. And when you do the feedback, people are much more comfortable talking about the positive things. But I think it's really essential that you do both talk about the positive things and what could be better. So great stuff. And what stood out to me was your point about don't stay in your lane. I'm paraphrasing. You need to get across the enterprise. And the reason that it struck me is that if anyone were to look at your background, you've worked in some of the biggest organizations that are out there. And one of the things that's turned me away from working at those large organizations is that the ones that I've come across always want you to stay in your lane. So it caught my attention that you're actually advocating for people to get out of their silos. So where did that come from and why is that important? Where it came from was when I first, when I started my career and I entered a large commercial bank, a financial services institution, and I was, it was my first real corporate job and I was charged with putting in place human resource solutions and programs across the entire company. And initially, you come out of graduate school, you have this knowledge, you're trying to apply it in a real-life setting. And so the worst thing you can do is come in and just say, I'm this expert, and I'm going to tell you what to do. You should never do that. That will not be well-received. And so many people come in, and they think they're the bright bulb, and they got to come in and tell everybody what to do. I actually think you have to listen and learn first. And a lot of times people think you have to listen and learn and go right to the top. So let me just listen and learn to what the CEO has to say and what they want 
and then I'm going to go do the solution. And to me, I call that managing up, but I don't think, I don't think that's a way to do your role in a company. You do have to listen and learn to the CEO because ultimately it's, they're the, the ultimate leader of the company. But if you forget to ask everyone else up and down the organization, not just the leaders, what's happening way down, layers down, three, four, five layers down from the very top leader, you are missing incredible information and knowledge because you need all views. So this is a vertical lane. You need the view from the top, but you need the top, you need the view from the bottom up because the CEO, after all these years, they don't really know what's going on at that first level of employee. You need to hear what is going on. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are they observing? What's working? What's not working? By the way, best source to learn about a function or a part of the business, because they are hands-on in the business. You can learn the most. The higher up you go to learn about a business, you're going to get the higher up view. But if you really want to deeply understand it, you need to go all the way down and all the way up and probably back and forth a few times to validate what you learn. So that's the vertical. I think people also say, I'm in this team. This is my job. I'm going to just put blinders on it and forget about the people on my sides and all the different things going on in the company. And I think that, yes, you could do that, but you're not going to be app effective. And you can do this in large organizations. I've, I'm coming from 25,000 people globally. And I knew people in every country of the world. I knew people in every office of the world. I, I, you can do it via phone. You can go and visit. And when you go to visit, you need to talk to everyone. And you need to understand all the different geographies, all the different lines of business. How do they work together? What are their missions and goals? It's listening and learning. And that's what it is. And with that foundation, you end up with, you're not staying in your lane. You're not saying, this is my job. This is my team. This is maybe my organizational entity. Where does that fit in the bigger picture? How do I connect the dots? What I really like about what you just explained, I liked all of it, but the connection that I drew was about the impact element that you're pointing to and also connecting the dots. Because when you think about it, most of the work is done at the middle management and individual contributor level. That's where the impact and work gets done. And one of the common problems that happens across any organization is that the line level people are often so disconnected from how the work is tied to the big picture. And it's up to managers to connect those dots. So if we're talking about how do you become effective as a manager, this is where managing up, managing down and managing across and having that curiosity and learning orientation really helps you connect the dots for your people. So I love how you, you pull that together. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the conversation that we're having. And you mentioned it earlier that when you're talking about transparency, setting expectations and having two-way feedback, we hear that stuff all the time. What I'd like you to do is walk us through some of the foundational things that you need to be doing across those three things that map out, how do you get to that point? How do you get to the point where you can be transparent? How do you get to the point where you can easily set clear expectations? How do you get to the point where you've created an environment where people are comfortable giving two-way feedback? So if you want to think of concentric circles, if you will, in the middle of the circle is me as a person, you as a person. And then around that is, is a lot of other circles, right? Me and my job in the context of this team, in the context of the organization, et cetera. 
I think the piece that people skip over is how do I even understand you as an individual? Do I even know anything about you? By the way, these strategies, I'm talking about them inside an organization, but to be honest, if you even think about it from a business development or a sales perspective, the, the relationships that you're building and getting to know people on a personal level matter tremendously in everything that we're doing. So even so just going back to what this is and creating that environment, I have to just say, tell me about yourself. Tell me who you are. Tell me about your background. Not just all your professional accomplishments, but where are you from? Where did you grow up? What kind of life experiences did you have? What kind of education? What did you like? Just getting to know people on an individual basis. And then you can start getting into more things about them. What are their skills? What are their experiences? What do they like to do? What do they hate to do? What do they want to learn? Because I think when you approach someone like that, they feel, and, and, I, and it's authentic, there's nothing inauthentic about it, that you're taking a true interest in them is a first and foremost a person. It all starts with us as individuals, and it has to be reciprocated from the leader. If you're going to ask all these things, but by the way, you need to also share who you are. That formed a true relationship. It's not a superficial relationship, but that begins the, the circles. It's the innermost circle, and I think it's actually the most important circle. And you start to learn things about the individual, and then it, it also builds a bond where you can go beyond that to the next thing. Okay, now let's talk about your role. This is what your role is, but by the way, that's what it was when I got here, but I don't think that's the right role. Given what you said and given what your skills are and what you like to do, it's not just what your skills are, but what do you like, what do you hate thing. I don't think that's the right role for you. And, and on top of it, I don't think we need that. I think the stuff you're doing is not a priority for the business. That's a transparent state right? That's, I'm creating an open dialogue. That's my view. What do you think? And you have to ask, not just tell, you have to ask. So that's what I observed. You're going to obviously have to ask the person first, tell me what you do. Tell me how it works. Tell me what's worked here. Tell me what wasn't said the second circle. First, it's you as the individual, then it's you in your role. And then you create literally a dialogue and it takes time. I think it takes a lot of time and people are feeling as if I don't have that kind of time. And I've had teams of 50 people, and I could tell you everything about all 50 people on my team because I'd form those relationships. And once you form those relationships, it allows you to work together and people really feel like you know them and you're vested in their best interests. And you've now created this personal transparency where they know you, them, their styles. There's a lot of formal things you can do around style. This is my style. This is your style. This is how I like to get updates. This is what is it that you want to make sure so you can do your job better. It's two, everything about what I'm saying are, are examples of two-way communication. And now that just starts to build that relationship. And based on that relationship and people really feeling like you know them, you then can begin to say, okay, my style is, this is now getting into the next concentric circle, is I'm going to be really transparent with you. So if I know something, I need help solving it. I, you're the team. We're going to solve it together. And so that means I have to tell you if something's challenging in the business, or I have to tell you if we're selling a part of the business, or if we're, and I have to trust that you're going to keep this confidence because I need you to participate with me to figure out how to sell it. I can't do it by myself. We're a team. And that is like the true definition of a team. So I, I know I'm talking about it in terms of what you say and what you do with your team, 
but it's very deliberate and it takes a lot of time and people skip over that those steps and you're missing this the engagement of the team people work for people they like they work with people they like the saying people don't leave an organization they leave their manager and, and it doesn't mean you can't be a tough manager and set high expectations because you can in a way that people feel that you're engaging them and also pushing them a little bit outside their comfort zone because when you push people outside their comfort zone this is when this is where growth and development occurs and obviously that's a joint discussion with somebody but that's a pretty key thing but you can't do that unless you've been transparent and you've set clear expectations and you've had this honest dialogue two-way dialogue about feedback and what's working and what isn't working. Wow. It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact Community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. Every bit of what you just said is dead on. I think the part that I want to emphasize is that if we're looking at the fundamental, like the core of what you just said, it's a people-centric approach. And the reason why I'm calling that out is that oftentimes what you'll see, especially with new managers, is they ignore the people side. You even called it out and said, hey, a lot of managers will like skip through this because it takes too long. But the reality of it is that if you're not focused on those things, first, you shouldn't be in the job because that's the job. No amount of spreadsheet management and managing by numbers is going to get you to build an elite team if you haven't laid the foundation of trust and communication first. And that's what I think is really great about that Venn diagram that you articulated for us. You have to take time to save time. and. You often think I'm going to skip that because I got to get to the deliverable. The truth of the matter is you're going to go slow in the beginning. You are going to go so much faster and so much steeper if you've built that foundation. I talk about this all the time. Slow down to speed up. Focus on ruthless execution on the fundamentals, which will set you up for success down the road. There's one interesting bit about what you just described, and I'd, I'd like to get your take on it. So we interviewed Yasmin Duncan, who's a CHRO of Magnolia Bakery, and she was one of our earlier episodes. And one of the things that she did was she took all of the things that you were talking about and integrated it into the onboarding process to set the tone for building that communication culture up front. I'd like to get your thoughts on taking that approach as a, a broad best practice. What do you think? Is that something that more organizations should be doing and setting the tone up front? I love that she did that. I think it's brilliant. And, and it is part of the onboarding process. And one of the things that we've put out, uh, and I've always done this at all of my companies, to help managers, not just me and my team, but to help our leaders and managers in the company is we give them a pretty simple onboarding checklist. And you would think, okay, onboarding checklist, it's the tactical stuff. There are logistical things that are important or tactical things for onboarding. But we add to the onboarding checklist just these exact items. Get to know your team, understand their history, set clear expectations with them. Ask them how they want to get feedback. Like we, we literally put this on the onboarding checklist. 
And what I what we also do, and that's why I love her idea, and this is a way of training people. We keep it super simple so it doesn't feel overwhelming. We also we and some people some companies I've been in, they're saying, like, just give that to the managers. And I'm like, I'm giving it to everybody. I want it to be transparent to the employee because if the manager doesn't do it, I'd like the employee to walk into the manager and say, can we talk about these things on a checklist? So somebody's got to do it. Sometimes the manager will do it, but sometimes the manager doesn't do it. So in that case, the employee can do it. And, the, and we say to the employee, this is we're sharing it because your manager should be doing this. If not, you go have the conversation. This, again, ties back to your two-way communication and setting the tone piece of it, because that's what Yasmin does, too is that they call it, provide the PIP up front. Why leave it up to chance or why wait six months, eight months, nine months for people to figure it out? Why not be clear with the expectations up front, both quantitative expectations, but also all that other stuff about how you like to be managed, how what your strengths and weaknesses are. Set that out on the table as part of your onboarding process and have it something that both manager and employee is accountable for them to move forward in the process and I'm pulling a lot of parallels, I think, from what you're describing as well. So I think it's really interesting to note that when you look at two different sort of backgrounds, there's a best practice that's drawn out of it that can help a lot of organizations. When you take a look at all of these things that we're talking about, and we spent a lot of time talking about being taking a people-centered approach, focusing on first principles and foundational things that you need to do to set the tone. How does that position you to really stretch your employees when the chips are down? People are not really used to their leader or manager being transparent in this way. So at first, it feels curious and different to them. Also, a lot of people are very private about their who they are, and they don't want to talk about it. So you have to respect that. But you have to see so it's not a cookie cutter thing. You have to know each person and respect their different personality styles and what they're willing to share or not. Over time, they end up sharing more and more, even those that don't want to share in the beginning, which is perfectly okay. Eventually, they find value in this transparency thing. And I've had people say to me, I did not get you in the beginning at all because I didn't know why you were doing this. No one's ever asked me these questions before. No one has ever taken such an interest in me personally for, in a work environment. And at first I liked, I found it, it was a distinct feeling because it was uncomfortable, but I actually totally get it because eventually they learn to value and trust what they're hearing and they learn and they know that you value and respect and use basically what they're saying. They also know that it helps them do their jobs better. And also it helps them understand why am I doing this? project and not that project? Why did we stop that? Why am I doing this? If otherwise it's a little, it's a little frustrating as to why all of a sudden I'm being asked to do something different than what I was doing before you got here. Why are you changing? it? You have to explain that, but you can't explain that if you haven't taken the time to build the trust. But in the beginning, there are people that just do not get it. And it's a little awkward, I would say. And over time is the thing here. They find the value in it. And they learn to trust and value that information is what I would say. There's an element of what you just said that I, I'd like you to map out a little bit better. I like the, the part where you said you spent a lot of time in helping teams understand where you're coming from and laying that foundation of trust. 
I do very similar things when I'm building out a team. My issue is that I have a high degree of impatience where things don't move as fast enough. What are some things that you would advise people like me that they can do to build the patience to move at the pace of the person that's in front of them versus the pace that you want to go? I think what you have to recognize, and it goes back to individual differences, and I think you have to respect those because everyone has a different amount of capacity. Some people can juggle 20 things at the same time. Other people can only do one. They're linear. Some people get stressed if there's too many things. Other people can love it. You have to really know the people because if somebody likes to go slow and methodical and think through, then you need to give them time to do that. And you need to assign the work accordingly. On various different teams, I've had people that are like excessively impressive on a process, like building out a process. So they're much more like tactical and they're not strategic at all. They're not conceptual at all. They're just, but if you say, figure out how we're going to get from here to there, they're unbelievable. So you got to, you, to me, this is go to the strengths model. So you just have to know you're the person that's going to build me the process. You're getting the process. I might try to give that person something a little bit more strategic or a little bit more comprehensive. And I want to push them to think in that way. And you try it a few times and you just, it's not necessarily, it might be a performance issue, but let's say it's not a performance issue. You just have to understand this person is good at the process. This person is better at the conceptual stuff and they're going to be a bigger thinker about tying the things together. You have to just identify how fast people want to work, how much they can take on. Some people are giving me more and other people are like, I can only do one thing at a time. <laughs> Sometimes you have to put two people on a project because you say you build a process and you figure out this, this strategic framework for it and we'll do it together. And then some people want to learn it. They just don't know. So they're open to learning it. So it goes back to know your people, which is that inner concentric circle first, and try to understand what their strengths are and try to understand who can be pushed and how. And to make somebody that's a sort of a methodical platter who likes to do a lot of steps and they like a lot of advanced notice and they can't turn on a dime and they don't want to shuffle what they're doing. You need to know that. And if they're a good performer at what they do, you need to respect that. And you work to assign the work to their strengths. There's got to be someone on your team that likes to go fast. If you need to go fast, give it to that person. <laughs> if you can't put a round peg in a square hole, but there are people that, that are round pegs that want to become, that want to add their edges. So you just have to know the person. It's so individual. And if you can figure that out about the people and there's an adage that says, treat people the way you want to be treated. The actual answer is treat people the way they want to be treated. But if you don't know that because you haven't taken the time to get to know the people and their strengths and their interests and what they like to do and what they don't and how they work, whether it's pace or quantity or time frames or whatever it is, you are not, you're going to frustrate the people. And by the way, they're going to frustrate you. One of the interesting things about a lot of the leadership and management advice that's out there is that oftentimes we say things and we say things so often that they become cliches where you can't really even figure out what do I do with that? How do I make that real? And what you just described is the execution steps that you need to take to quote unquote meet people where they are. That's something that we hear all the time. 
And the big thing that I drew out of your answer is that you can't cookie cutter your way to make this work to any large degree. It goes back to what we started the conversation with is that you have to be people centric in your approach. And then once you've spent the time there, you can actually develop your pacing as an organization to fit the strengths of the people that are on your team. How do you get people to think beyond what they even expected of themselves, leveraging the strengths that you've uncovered through these relationship building efforts that you've taken on? One of the best compliments I think you, I think, or that I've received as a leader manager is when somebody says to me, you push me outside my comfort zone. That's, that to me is a massive compliment, men and they're comfortable with it, obviously. So how do you get them to go beyond their limits? If you don't know the people and you don't know their strengths and you don't know their gaps and you don't know their motivation, um, it's very hard to do this. It takes a lot of time to figure it out. And it's a little bit iterative. I've given projects to people over the years on my team that I think I thought they could do it. It's a little bit of a stretch. I've offered my help. We've sat down up front and then I've had it go both ways. I've had people really knock it out of the park and succeed. And I've had people just every work product I got over and over again was poor. If every work product you get from the person is poor, it's a performance issue. But if, the, if you push them outside of their comfort zone and the work product is poor, you might have pushed the wrong thing to the wrong person. You have to take accountability for it as a manager and a leader. It isn't just the person, but obviously there's a bigger context there. But it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. So, I, so you have to iterate on it, learn it, and try it. And then if it succeeds, you go to the next thing. And if it doesn't succeed, you figure out why. When I'm making an assignment and it's pushing somebody out of their comfort zone, the very first thing I do is ask them. I say, I would like you to do this. I know you've never done this before. Do you want to do this? I think you can because you have X, Y, and Z, but I know you don't know A, B, and C. Are you game? And first of all, I'm asking, okay, if they say, yes, I really want to do this, this is great. The next thing I do is I sit down and I start with what I expect out of that project. I'm obviously not doing the project for them, but I'll map out, here's the outcome. It's outcome focus. Here's the result. Here's what we got to achieve. You're going to figure out how we get there, but this is what it should look like. So it's very clear. The third thing is I'll say, we're going to check in because I want to give you feedback along the way. So you tell me, this is the part I need you to do first. How much time do you need? Can you get it back to me next week? I don't want you to do a finished product. I just want to see where you are. But where, how much time do you need to come back to me? And obviously, I know what the ultimate time frame is. But, so it's got to be within that time frame. But like, you tell me what you need. And they'll say, I need about a week. Okay, great. So I'm going to set a meeting a week from now. I want to see what you're thinking, where you are. So I'm like letting them... It's you go back and forth, like you, you join up and you set the plan, you let them go out and try it out, but then you have to check in because the worst thing you can do is they spend the next three to four weeks doing whatever it is and whatever the time frame. they come back with the finished product. They're super happy about it and they walk in and it's missed the mark completely because you didn't bother to, to check in along the way or give them help or help develop them or give them a resource or a suggestion. And there is nothing more crushing to somebody when you gave them a new project, it's a stretch thing, and they go spend X amount of time, call it four weeks, and come back and they're beaming with pride and you look at it and you go, you missed the mark completely. That is not it. That's a horrible feeling. 
And it's frustrating because now you lost four weeks. It's frustrating to you as the manager. And by the way, that person is feeling really bad about what they did. And believe me, they tried. So you want to set them up for success by setting clear expectations up front, checking in. I call it the check-in along the way. And the check-in means feedback. This is right. This is off. This is great. Keep going. Whatever you're going to say. And at the end, they give you the product. And nine times out of 10, 9.9 times out of 10, it's awesome. And you're, and they're proud and you're proud and everybody's happy. And now they like feel accomplished. Like they move the needle, their growth, just, they just grew. They just did something they never did before, or they learned something new, or they took something on and they feel really good about it, but you set them up for success. There's a couple of things about that answer that I really like. And it goes back to breaking down some of the cliches that exist within the business world and the leadership world. Everybody talks about you want to fail fast, fail forward. You just mapped out how you actually build a culture that allows for that because you're not just leaving things to chance. There's a process in place that actually allows you to fail forward because you're taking iterative steps towards the big outcome. So for those that, who have listened and have taken that in, that's your roadmap. Jill just mapped it out for you. How do you build a failure culture that fails forward versus just everything being a crapshoot. Jill, this has been a fantastic conversation. So we've talked about a lot of stuff when it comes to how you build a culture in a team environment where people are pushing themselves to the next level. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the foundational things that need to exist for that to happen. When you think about somebody who just wants to get started on this, what should they have at, at top of mind that they should start work on first to build to this type of organization that has space for failure, that has space for development, and that has space for a high degree of trust in how they do things. We're all people. So you got, and you can't do anything without the people. Whatever organization we're in, it is comprised of people. You need to know your people. And that actually speaks to the people on your team. By the way, they need to know you too, because you're coming in as a different maybe different than the prior leader or people's prior leaders. So you need to know the people on your team, what they like, what they're good at, what their history is, what their strengths are, et cetera. I would also say you need to know the people in the organization because that is what forms the culture of the organization. And that's going to also inform you about making your whole team effective because the people are really an essential piece of this. But I really know that that's going to help you know who can do what type of thing. And that also speaks to the focus that we talked about with respect to strengths. And I'm going to add another concept that we didn't quite dig into here, but I think is super important. You can think of all of this as a change management exercise in a way. And so what helps people to change if you're coming in and you're building a high-performing team, and by the way, we all should be continuously changing the saying change or die, but you need to continuously change and grow with the company as individuals and as a team and as the solutions that you're providing to the business or to customers or whatever. In order for people to change, there's really three fundamental elements. Number one, they need to know why are we doing what we're doing? What is the business reason for this? And that is something that you can cover in your transparency. Why is your role here? Why are we doing these projects? Why is this going to impact the business? Why do we exist? Why are roles here? Why is our team here? What's the business context? What are we trying to achieve? 
This, the second thing is, where do we want to take it all? What are the outcomes? And I think outcomes are really key. Every business is focused on outcomes. And every team in a business needs to be focused on outcomes. That part's, I think, easier why we're doing this and where we're going. It's hard, but it's easiest. The hard one is the how. And that goes into knowing the people, making sure people have clear roles. They know the context. They know the, the expectations that they're getting feedback along the way. You could say the just-in-time that they have, they're allowed to make adjustments. If there's, I, and that's who I can push out of their comfort zone. You can't push everyone out of their comfort zone in the same way. It's so personal to that individual. And then that goes back to leveraging their strengths and really knowing what those are. Jill, if people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? And you can find me on LinkedIn, Jill Zimmerman. Jill, thanks for hanging out with us. Learned a lot during this conversation. There's a few things that stand out about the discussion that we had. One of the things that stands out to me is that if you're an individual contributor or manager, the first thing that you need to do within any organization is take the time to listen and learn. And the listening and learning exercise needs to be done at all levels of the organization. That's the only way that you're going to make meaningful impact because that's the best thing that you can do to get the big picture and the full picture of what needs to be done. The second thing that stands out about this conversation is that when you're looking at driving impact, and building a culture that al allows the space for failure. You have to be rooted in the strengths of the people on your team, and you have to ask each member of that team, what is it that they want to take on? Without that necessary step, you're just guessing at what's gonna have an impact, what's gonna be meaningful for the people on the team. And if you really wanna build a culture that is highly transparent, that is really pushing the envelope in terms of what they can get done, you have to do those foundational things first. This is not something that you can shortcut and fast forward through. So Jill, appreciate you hanging out with us and sharing those insights. For those of you who have listened to this conversation, leave us a review, let us know what you think, and then tune in next time where we'll have another great leader joining us to share the game-changing realizations that they've had that helped them build high-performing teams. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.